At uncontrolled airspace in the virtual hangar, the pilots were chatting, but then heard a bang or a noise of some kind from behind the tool shelf. Twas a man dressed in red, a quite jolly old elf. He opened his pack, and he flashed them a look, and he rummaged around, and he pulled out a book. The pilots all hoped there was something for them. They begged, Santa, look in your pack once again. Did you bring me a gadget? An avgas container? He said, no, you've been bad. I've brought just the disclaimer. But Santa Claus smiled as he read to them there his message of wisdom and safety and care. The UCAP members, those wise old flyers, are speaking their very own thoughts and desires. The folks whom they work with might not feel the same, and that is all right. No one is to blame. The stories they tell and advice, while terrific, you take them as general and never specific. When you're in your plane and pilot in command, keep all of your training right there close at hand. Assess your own situation that day and fly your own airplane just like my sleigh. And they heard him exclaim as he flew out of sight, But you knew that already, so have a good flight. Uh, anyways, here's my story I want to tell you. Um, y many years ago, when I was still living in California, this would have been mid to late uh, 90s, um, I was doing a project for my EAA chapter where I was uh, wandering all over the Bay Area, looking, uh, wandering around airports, uh, poking my head into hangars, and finding all of the warbirds that were in private hands that were you know, hidden away in, in, uh, in people's hangars and taking pictures and putting together a presentation for our, one of our chapter meetings. One time I was wandering around an airport. I'm pretty sure that this was uh, Livermore Airport that I'm remem remembering this from. Livermore is an airport uh, just to the east of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm walking up and down the rows, and I go by one of the hangars, and it has its door like maybe a third of the way open, a halfway open, and it's kind of dark inside. And I'm peeking in looking for what kind of airplane he's got in there, and I didn't see any airplane. And then I sort of took a step back because I realized that there was an airplane in there. There was a big airplane in there. There was a huge tail dragger biplane in there. And I, uh, I, uh, coincidentally, I mean, obviously the door was open, so somebody was there. And I said, what in the world is that? Turns out this was an Antonov AN-2, um, this, this amazing airplane. Um, and it was not airworthy at the time. He was working on it. But, uh, but there are those who say that it is not airworthy at any time. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh. And uh, we... This, <laughs> We found this story, Jeb. I think it was you who found this story um, about um, a, a flight report from uh, about one of these things. Uh, I just realized the story you pointed us to is actually back in the, the same time period, like 96-ish. And uh, quite a story. Tell us, tell us what caught your attention about this, Jeb. Well, it was just the, the detail and the colorful descriptions. Colorful in this case doesn't necessarily mean um, scatological, but just uh, very descriptive. Stephen Wilkinson yeah. uh, wrote this. Uh, appeared uh, originally appeared in the 1996 September 1996 Falco Builders Letter. Falco, of course, is a um, <clears throat> a home built type, home built design. And um, uh, Mr. Wilkinson had. Uh, had occasion to do a test flight uh, uh, on uh, an AN-2, 
uh, and uh, very descriptively wrote about it. I, I was I found it laugh out loud funny. Uh, it, it, it's it's both funny and intriguing. It's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. The, the detail. This is quite an airplane. And I didn't realize that they're still making these things, or at least they were in 96. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. They are uh, still making them. They're still making them today. Yeah. Now, and back, you can buy them today with actual uh, uh, standard category, utilita- utility category airworn certificates, I believe, because the last one I saw was uh, about a year old. Uh, this is about... This would be about 98. It was about a year old uh, out of the factory, uh, and it had been delivered to Crevecourt Airport, which is mm. on the west edge of the uh, St. Louis area. Uh, Crevecourt, the operator bought it there for aerial tours, rides, and uh, as possible skydiving airplane. Uh, and there are a lot of people who you know, like to compare it to a bumblebee. Bumblebees aren't supposed to be able to fly either. <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, you put a thousand horsepower on a biplane, well, something shaped like a biplane, and it damn well gets off the ground. Yeah. He goes into a lot of detail. It's really fascinating. On uh, but the systems description is just fascinating. I mean, anybody used to to flopping around on a Skyhawk. Uh, is going to really wonder. This thing's got <laughs> pneumatic systems. It's got engine-driven air pumps and and uh, all this kind of stuff. And you know the brakes are are, are pneumatic instead of hydraulic. Um, it's it's huge radial uh, powering this thing and uh, just one of them. Um, See, it, yeah, it's just a buyer's beware because it's the the yeah. article starts out and says, "Oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread." I don't know why we didn't do more of this. The devil's in the details. I tell devil's you what. In- it, Devil's in the details. Now, of course, this article is 12 years old, uh, and they are still making AN2s, um, as Dave points out. Um, one of the punchlines would be you, I, some of the, the uh, limitations discussed towards the end of the article uh, may not apply today. Um, yeah. uh, we just don't know. You know, buyer, buyer beware, certainly. Um, but um, it doesn't strike me that... Uh, Getting an airworthy AN2 and and being able to fly it in the standard category would be all that uh, uh, all that out of reach at this point. I just in time. get a vision of Jimmy Jimmy Stewart uh, putting shotgun shells in the uh, uh-huh. in the starter and every you know that you know they're talking about the batteries and what you have to do with that and you have to say a prayer and you know and take it <laughs> for a drink and everything you know before it starts. I mean, <laughs> it gets crazy. Yeah, and it it is absolutely built to be self sustaining. I yeah. mean the, uh, the the ability to use an onboard pump to fill tanks from barrels on the ground right. from a pump installed in the airplane uh, to blow up the tires with the air compressor that's installed on board to power the braking system. I've known other aircraft uh, that were meant for the bush that used pneumatics for things like brakes and landing gear and all that because all you had to do is fix the hose to handle the pressure. You didn't have to replace fluid like with a uh, hydraulic system. Uh, some of the uh, uh, old Fokker F-27s were that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but... Uh, Watching one of these things get off the ground is just amazing. Uh, I mean, anybody that's used to watching a tailwheel airplane do a roll, lift a tail, and then rotate mm-hmm. will be stunned because it, it does the air show trick. It actually seems to rotate off the mains with the tail still on the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Now, one of the one of the great lines from this article is uh, let's see, I read a couple par- a couple sentences here. He writes, "So, what is it like to fly an AN2? Well, let's be honest here. Out of 115 separate types that the writer has logged over 29 years, this is the single most unpleasant airplane I've ever flown." He writes, and he says, "Not because it's nasty. It's certainly the most benign large airplane in my experience." Um, as well, but because it combines the challenge the challenge of instruments as random and unfamiliar as those in a slumlord's boiler room with the manipulation of controls right out of, uh, of Alice Chammer's School of Design, plus the physical demands of roll and pitch forces that must have produced entire generations of Aeroflot weightlifting teams, he said, other than that, it's a piece of cake. So uh, it was a handful to fly, uh, and I can only imagine. There's one line in here that I just laugh out funny to me, and uh, um, uh, he says, talking about control feel, he says, feel? Well, let's just say flying an AN2 is like making love to a fat lady who's had too much to drink. There's a lot to work with. It's unresponsive. You're never quite sure when you're there, and it's big-time ugly. (laughs) Roll control is enormously heavy and delayed. Is it going to turn? Oh, oh yeah, there it goes. Adverse yaw is considerable. A living demonstration of the purpose of a rudder. Uh, You know, there's an experimental amateur built two-seater that I flew a few years ago that you could have lifted... Yeah. That text from what I wrote about that airplane. Yes, you know that's my question for you guys who have flown a lot of different airplanes. Tell me about some of the the you know I don't know big clunky heavy difficult airplanes that you've flown. What's the most the most extreme airplane that you've each of you have flown or one of you have flown? The heaviest I'm, thing I've ever flown was an FA eighteen. Uh, well, yeah, but let's all right, okay. But but it was it it, it had no control issues. The most uh, work I've ever done in an airplane was a a, uh, a Beach 1900D. Mm-hmm. Uh, all mechanical. That's a 19 seat airliner with a stand up cabin and uh, a turboprop. Uh, no boost on the controls. It's all mechanical uh, and the uh, nose wheel steering is all direct connect. So if you don't have your lap belt down really tight. When you go to make a, a sharp turn at a taxiway, pushing on the rudder pedal will lift your butt out of the seat. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Fareed? What's the what's the biggest clunkiest airplane you've ever flown? Well, the the biggest clunkiest airplane that I've ever flown is um, I'd say the G two in manual reversion. You know what that <laughs> means? No, tell us. <laughs> That's when the, all the hydraulics are gone, and you're just flying on on pure. Uh, Pure adrenaline is basically what it is, and it's only been simulated in a simulator. But uh, that's kind of the uh, uh, the DC-10 at Sioux City kind of thing, where um, you you really have to to plan out your moves about ten to fifteen seconds, twenty seconds ahead of time mm-hmm. uh, to do things like that. And um, I guess that's the closest thing I could say that simulates what it sounds like this thing flying this AN2 is like. Is, is having no hydraulics for an airplane that needs hydraulic boosting on its controls. Yeah, yeah Jeb, go. Um, Seneca 1, actually. Um, um, there's a reason that they turbocharged that airplane. Uh-huh. Uh, it, 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 with, with just, you know, me and an instructor, it's, it's not a bad little airplane. Um, it, 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 roll control is, you know, turn the yoke and wait. You know, a few seconds before that Hershey bar wing actually decides it wants to bank. 
Um, the engines, of course, the mass of the engines don't help it bank at all. Um, it's, it's, it was heavy in pitch. Um, you know, lightly loaded, it was like a rocket ship compared to some of the stuff I'd been flying at the time. But uh, I, I, I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night in fear of being in a Seneca, a fully loaded Seneca one. Because it would have to be one of one of Piper's greatest mistakes. As I say, there's a reason they turbocharged that airplane. Yeah, if you uh, want to stay in Piper's, would be better. the yeah. If you want to stay in Piper's, the Apache is kind of the same way. It's a little yeah. little stiff here and there, uh, and of course, uh, uh, the only time you can really simulate a decent engine out and keep altitude is in the winter time. Right. Right. Well, it, it, yeah. there's a lot to commend this AN2 as a family airplane until you oh, get yeah. to that. 105 knots on 45 gallons an hour. Right. That's <laughs> and, and then, you know, the, the 10 gallons an hour in oil or something, you know. Uh, yeah, 32 gallon, uh, 32 gallon, 32 gallon aviators, yeah, oil tank. Gallons of oil. And as one guy in the article put it, said that it, 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 the safety factor is that you'll run out of fuel just before you run out of oil. That's right. <laughs> and I think it's empty to think that the caravan, Cessna, Cessna was afraid that their caravan would be frozen out because. That that AN two is an operational nightmare for any p- kind of business. This is trying to to have a fleet of those running around. Yeah. So, right, let alone on their own. Out, if you're flying out there in Siberia, man, that's the way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, it's a cool story. And uh, if you are flying in Siberia and you are listening to this podcast, please drop us a note. Yeah. Cards and letters, please. That's right. <laughs> yes. Thanks, yes. Yeah, we'll put the uh, we'll put the the URL to this uh, link to this uh, story in the show just, notes. Just um, a cute article, but it's a it's a fascinating article. I, I enjoyed reading it. So, anyways, hey, welcome everyone to episode one hundred and thirteen of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Thursday evening, December eighteenth, two thousand and eight. And let me say hi to the gang here in the virtual hangar with me. One of those voices out there is Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. Ho, freaking ho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys are getting into the Christmas spirit out there, huh? It snowed a yeah. little. You better believe yeah. it, about three fingers worth at a time. Uh, <laughs> happy holidays, everybody. I hope you got a great season planned ahead. And if you were trying to fly in or out of Wichita today, well, there's always tomorrow. <laughs> it was not a day for flying, huh? Uh, well, let me put it this way. Uh, we've got a whole population of Canada geese here that are waiting for de-icing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, When when the ducks are walking, you know it's a good day to be inside. You you can't see. I'm I'm looking out my office window right now at the park next to my house, and there are lights on the side of my house that light up that park. You cannot see 200 feet through the fog right now. Hmm. And it's about freezing, so that would be really fun fog to fly in in an unice protected airplane. Uh, what fun do you call that? Flo- Paper fun, fun fog to fly in. <laughs> Dave's the one who flies AFR, IFR for fun, so uh, sure, yeah. Hey, that other voice out there is, uh, or another one of those voices, is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from Sarasota, talking to, oh, easy for me to say, talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Yeah. I'm spiffy, uh, and I'm also nice and warm and cozy and dry. Yeah, okay. Uh, but uh, so you're the one. I, I am. I am indeed the one. I I've uh, uh, been exchanging emails with a few people in Oshkosh uh, this week 
uh, one of them uh, told me that uh, one morning this week it was minus seven. It was. On the, on the <laughs> yeah. thermometer and minus 15 with the wind chill. And well, this was in Fahrenheit, boys and girls. I was in Florida just, a, a week yeah, ago, just, and it doesn't, wasn't a lot warmer than, but well, it was warmer than that. But uh, anyway. Just yeah. a cool breeze, baby. Yeah, that's, yeah, right, that's right. Yeah, just cool breeze. That's right. And speaking of someone from from the great frozen north, uh, also with us in the hangar today is uh, Farid Guillaume, aka EAA Radio's Afterburner Al. How you doing, Farid? You're up in Rockford, Illinois. The Ford. Rockford, Illinois. What do you call the, it? The, I, the Ford, the Rock. The, what do you call I'm, it? I'm rocking the Ford. Rocking the and Ford. I was <laughs> I was up in Oshkosh last night. We'll talk about that later if we have time. Okay. And uh, I've already replaced one part of my furnace this week, and I'm looking for to retrofit my snowblower with hand warmers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I've talked about that. Yeah, it gets it's not always summer in Wisconsin, contrary to my my fantasy. It's uh, well, I mean, it, it, when you got a hundred, hundred and ten degree temperature swing in an average year that's 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 pretty extreme it's pretty extreme that's pretty last extreme. work week i did spend the whole week not going north of tennessee so uh i i have had it pretty easy the last couple of weeks working wise yeah although it hasn't been especially warm down there either this lately but uh Anyways, oh, no. yeah. hey, before we move on, let me say that I am Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from Dover, hey. Dover New Hampshire. Where so, and we've had a little bit of weather up here. It's been in the news. I guess you guys have been uh, been hearing about our. I, I, last week when we did the podcast, I was down in Tallahassee, Florida, and as I was getting ready to travel home, we were hearing all these stories about this big ice storm that was happening, and and how the power was out. And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to make it home just in time for there to be no power in my apartment. And yep. That's right. There was no power in my apartment. My power was out in my place for two days, and I got off easy. Um, I, well, I was I was thinking about you, and and, and I was going to call or email, and and then then the the mood passed. Yeah, right. You came to your senses. Came so. to the senses. So weather ain't news unless it's in the East Coast. Is that how it is? It's usually I guess so because when I lived in California, the first couple of uh, of you know weeks or, or a couple of months that I was there, I'd get up every morning, I'd be driving my car, listening to the radio, and I'd go think, tell me what the weather's going to be. What's the weather? And because in New England, the weather on the radio is a is a given. You know, it's like always telling you what the weather is and going to be. But in California, they never do because it's the same as yesterday. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, what do I want to say? Oh, so I'm Fareed. We, we got way we got a big list again this week, but I can't I can't let this pass by. You were in Oshkosh. What's going on in Oshkosh? Uh, the annual Wright Brothers Memorial Dinner. Oh yeah, uh-huh. what's that all about? Tell uh-huh. us about that. The uh, keynote was Frank Borman, Apollo Eight, and um, he was uh, you know a young seventy one as or sorry eighty one as uh, Paul Pobrezny got up there and called him son. And uh, so, <laughs> but <laughs> he was entertaining. It's it's kind of become my holiday party. This is the second year in a row I've done it since none of the companies I work for can afford a holiday party anymore. Might as well just go up to Oshkosh and have a nice, wonderful dinner in the Eagle Hangar. What a beautiful setting that is if you've ever been there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, to kind of dovetail on that, I, I attended the the one of the EA's leadership uh, conferences that they held they hold every month. This was in October, and I got a behind the scenes look at uh, what's going on in the museum. And uh, just last night, I got to look at the new founders wing that's going in up there, where uh, Paul Pobrezny's prodigious collection of uh, aviation memorabilia is going to be donated oh, to the museum. Wow. Oh wow, and, that's right. Yep. Wow. 
So they're going to have a they're going to have in the new receiving area or in the receiving area of the museum is it being converted into a founders wing where you can have uh, events down on the floor and then they've ringed the the uh, the upper level with a, um, just an area where they'll display they'll display artifacts and they're going to recreate a Milwaukee basement. <laughs> so, oh no, kidding! Yep, yep. Oh wow! Now, how yep. long were you up there? Did you just zoom up for the evening or something? Because I'm yeah. I'm curious to get a report on what's going on with their they're redoing the grounds of the of AirVenture. And, I do uh, have pictures which I can supply. I took pictures in October. I just had a uh, a talk with uh, uh, Ron Scott, who heads the communications section, about all the new wires we're going to have to lay because they scraped up so much dirt. And moving things around. Uh-huh. Um, well, let me ask the... you a couple of particular questions and see if you know. First of all, um, are they, so I take it they're not moving the EA Radio Building. I was wondering whether this might be the year that they pull that back from the flight line a little bit. Oh no, we've already got plans for machine gun nests and uh, <laughs> yeah, things no, like that. Where defend we, your we, key location there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we are that auxiliary power. <laughs> we 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 have plans to to dig in and. And uh, you know we'll be like the, uh, the those last guys are trying to get off the islands after World War II. I mean we're we're going to defend our turf to the end. Um, the the big thing they're doing right now is phase one is they've got from the uh, and it's it's on the website they show uh, the the two big traffic lanes that start at the uh, the admission gates which are going to be moved back and these are for vehicles so they you can insert yourself into the grounds without having to right. to, to deal with a lot of people. Sort which of was a, a, big a couple concern. of commuter lanes that take you from the right. entryway all the way down on one direction down to the forums and then the other direction down sort of, I guess, in the general area of theater in the woods. Probably. Yeah, it's going to terminate there. Also, the um, the fly market has been moved to within feet of where I usually camp, which is the youth pavilion area of the of Paul's Woods, as it's called. Mm-hmm. And so the the fly market, uh, with the only good thing that I've seen about this, they used to have about, I don't know, 10 flagpoles that are about sure, 50 I'm... feet tall. Yep. And, and, and at night, the, the constant slap of the, uh, of the ropes against the, the metal, you know, you'd hear that all night, especially in a strong wind. Whack, whack, whack. Just trying to sleep in a tent, you know, with no soundproofing. It can really bug you if you're a light sleeper. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So, yeah. so, so what... There, so there is, a, there is a really... There's an interesting blog um, on the EAA, actually the... Uh, uh, well, mm-hmm. it's part of the AirVenture uh, website. Yes. Steve um, Taylor, who's the head of grounds. Right. Steve Taylor's been doing a blog where he posts about once a week. He puts a little uh, article up with some pictures, and uh, um, it's really interesting. I wish I wish he'd post a little more often, and I wish he'd post pictures that had a little, that were larger so that I can... Because it's some cool aerial views of the new grounds, but I want to zoom in to look at particular spots, and, and uh, I wish... But, but that's kind of just my little... Yeah. You know, there, personal requests. It's kind of cool that he put, they publish this information. Go ahead. They're going nuts up there, and I'll try to I'll try to keep you informed of stuff I right. hear. And the one thing I wanted to pass along to you, since we're talking about EAA stuff, and that is, is that I bumped into Charlie Becker at that at that um, um, leadership forum, and he said uh, that he he's an avid listener and he he really loves the work you do. And yeah, he he, he can't wait for the next episode to come out. Uh, it's very nice to hear. We've heard that before. We know it's very gratifying that that he and a lot of people like him are are you know listeners on a regular basis. Really nice knowing that in addition to our mothers, we can count on at least one other person. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So just to recap here, uh, anyone who's interested in following the progress of the uh, new Air Venture site or the changes to the to the old Air Venture site. 
website. Um, this blog uh, is uh, uh, it's called Steve's AirVenture Site Updates. It's Steve Taylor of EAA, and the URL, we'll put it in the, in the show notes, but it's relatively easy. Let me say it. It's airventuresiteupdate.blogspot.com. So uh, take a look at that. And my other final question, um, so you were on the grounds. Is the old tower still there, or is it gone? What's the latest on that? Old tower still soldiering away, as they say. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't have any information on future plans for it, but as of, I want to say, uh, early November, it was still there because I actually was overnight in Oshkosh for a trip one night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stopped through there, and the old tower was still there. Yeah. Well. I, you know, we're, it's probably doomed before we go out there next July, but... Uh, but I like your idea. I want a break. Yeah, I because... It's uh, Jeb's idea, actually, but um, I'm totally on board. We all want a souvenir brick from the old yeah. FAA control tower, and uh, um, we've been told, sadly, that we will not be able to get one because the bricks all belong to the construction company that's tearing it down or something, and uh, which uh, that's understandable too because they're trying to you know kind of make ends meet and be as frugal as possible in the which will end up on my chimney, which is the reason it leaked in the first place and I had to get it replaced. <laughs> so somebody, anyways, well, thank you for that report. Somebody was to surreptitiously swing by there and, yeah. and spirit away a handful of bricks. I can. Personally, I'll, guarantee yeah. anonymity and a reward. <laughs> uh, what what he said. Plus, if anyone um, listening to the sound of my voice would give us, you know, a, uh, I don't know, maybe a week or so advance warning as to when bricks might be available, um, we'll be there with a truck. Be there with a big truck. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Let's see now. Uh, David, you called attention to this really cool story about Festus Memorial Airport uh, in, uh, I'm not sure where. Tell, tell us this story. This is kind of cool. Well, Festus Memorial Airport is the unbelievably tiny little field, 2,200 foot paved. Uh, it's about 10 or 11 miles south of the outer ring of the uh, Lambert uh, International Class Bravo ring. This is in Missouri? It's in Missouri. Uh, It's maybe a mile and a half from the Mississippi, separated by some low hills. Uh, It was my first fuel stop on my first. I got a real pilot's license cross-country trip uh, that Annie and I took in our little Cherokee 140 six days after I got my pilot's license uh, uh, back years ago. And the uh, some of the powers that be locally were trying to sell it. Well, they decided they were going to sell it despite the uh, efforts of the local pilots. So a group formed called Citizens for Airport Economic Expansion was formed in 2003. Uh, They worked and worked to save the airport. Then they raised money and successfully bid and bought Festus Memorial and it is now, uh, well, it's being transferred to private hands. And the folks at uh, CAEE have plans to try to lengthen the runway. Uh, they want to go from 2,200 feet first to 3,000 and then add another 1,000 feet. And having been there, I've I, I got to tell you, there is plenty of room for the runway to be lengthened. Uh, they beat out an outfit, a big business outfit, that wanted to uh, buy the land and tr- 
do away with the airport and turn it into, uh, I forget what they were going to turn it into, uh, but they had plans to build some kind of plant in the vicinity, and they were going to use the airport property as part of those plans. So, uh, you know, Lambert, it says here it's 52 miles away. Uh, haven't been in and out of there and over it so many times. I do know that it's just, you know, like I said, 10 or 11 miles outside the outer ring of the Bravo over Lambert. Uh, lovely little field. Uh, we called ahead on that September evening of Labor Day weekend all those years ago and found out that the field and the FBO was closing at 7. And one thing or another, a little later departing than we planned, uh, didn't get quite the ground speed that we'd hoped for. And as we were descending for Festus, we were fretting that they were going to be closed because we needed fuel to get on to Jeffersonville, Indiana, Juliet, Victor, Yankee. And uh, we were looking down at the convergence of interstate highways right down there, marveling at all the headlights and taillights, bumper to bumper, crawling along, feeling really cool that we weren't stuck in that traffic. Mm-hmm. And we landed, and the lights are off at the FBO. Mm-hmm. But there was a truck just pulling out of the parking lot. And as we were rolling out past the taxiway turnoff, I saw the lights. I saw the brake lights. I saw the backup lights. Then I concentrated on turning the airplane around, came back. The guy backed back in, fired the lights back up turned the fuel pumps back on, took care of us. I asked if we needed a ride into town for anything, told him no, we were pushing on. Uh, and as we climbed out, he he stayed there and waited until we were out of sight. I still remember we had to make a climbing turn to get over the hills to the east. And uh, as we were banking, right down below us, about 1,200 feet below us, was a high school football game going on on a September Friday evening. It was just such a treat. So we made it a point to stop at Festus as often as we could. And it was really bothered me when I heard that it was the, the, the local authorities were trying to close it out. Mm-hmm. So Citizens for Airport Economic Expansion, way to go, guys. Way to save an airport. Uh, if you're on a cross-country anywhere in the vicinity or you're just looking for a place to go for uh, uh, for, for a uh, boring holes on an afternoon or evening, highly commend you. The hospitality there is great. Nice folks. It is short, 2,200 feet. And uh, as we found out, heavily loaded in a Comanche on a hot day, we used 2,100 feet of the runway one. <laughs> That sounds great. I want to visit there, and it's a, it's a long ways away from me, but that sounds great. So the designator is Foxtrot Echo Sierra. Uh, you can get in and out of there with having, without having to dice with the nice guys at the <laughs> St. Louis Approach Facility. Uh, yeah, we've talked about them in the past, I think. Yeah. And, uh, yes. uh, and they even offered us a courtesy car on one trip in there. Uh, there were three airplanes ahead of us. We were hungry. Uh, we were on our way back from the East Coast. Uh, somebody tossed us the keys to their personal car. We made a run into town to a fast food place. It was about two, two and a half miles. Uh, brought some sodas and snacks back for the folks at the airport. No charge for use of the car. Uh, fuel was reasonable. Uh, always like stopping in there, and I'm really glad to know that we're going to be able to continue stopping in there for a long time to come because of a bunch of private citizens that got together uh, 
I mean, Festus is only 9,600 people or so. Mm-hmm. And the county population is less than 200,000. Yeah. So the idea of these guys coming up with the funds to buy a public airport, take it private, and keep it alive uh, just blows me away. I couldn't be happier, and congratulations to all of them involved. Yep, that's great. That's great. So for the last few weeks, we've been speculating occasionally on and off uh, a bit about who President-elect Obama may choose to be the next Secretary of Transportation, and it appears that we now know who it's going to be. Um, all of the, uh, the the rumors and hints, and it's I guess it's going to be announced in the next couple of days, perhaps by the time people are listening to this. NBAA and the NATA have both already offered congratulations to retiring Congressman Ray LaHood, who's been uh, seven terms in the U.S. House of Representatives representing the 18th District of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is President-elect Obama's second Republican on the, in the cabinet uh, and has a long-time record of being supportive of small airports, general aviation, and aviation development in general. Mm-hmm. So we're, 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 kind of, uh, we're kind of happy to hear about this guy. Yeah. Cautious, cautiously optimistic. I so you guys were be... familiar with this gentleman prior to this announcement. I'd never heard his name before. but uh... I, I'd, I'd known of him. He, he was on the uh, Transportation Infrastructure Committee in the House for a few years. And uh, um, I, I wasn't working the committee at that time, or I wasn't, certainly wasn't working um, uh, him. But um, he... Um, uh, c- comes away well, well respected at least by his peers and and uh, by those who uh, you know make their living um, in transportation issues. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm kind of, kind of take a wait and see attitude. I have nothing against him. Nothing against. Um, um, uh, I, I kind of wonder if maybe there were some other choices out there, but I don't know. I'm not the guy doing the checking. Yeah. Farida, this is like, I'm going to I'm going to reveal my ignorance of Illinois geography here. This is not by any chance your district, is it? It is not. Peoria is central and then west uh-huh. on the way to Quincy. I see. Uh, but oh, not okay, quite on the way to Quincy. All right, okay. Well. Yeah, not not quite Springfield. It's uh, north of Springfield, but you pass over Peoria on the way to Springfield. So. So. Uh, so this announcement will happen from our perspective in the next couple of days. Like I said, listeners will probably have already heard this um, if the rumors are correct and they appear to be. And uh, we'll see what happens. So, and it's interesting. There have been several names, uh, and we've talked about a f- some of them, I believe, on the podcast uh, that have been trial balloons of, of to one extent or another, uh, as named as the um, um, next sec dot. Uh, I wonder if some of those names that we've talked about um, uh, will end up uh, as at FAA, mm-hmm. but I also wonder that since we have seen a lot of names floated as trial balloons, uh, whether LaHood is in fact the, the final one. I don't know. This seems like a much more definitive. It, uh, well, more people are talking about it, and it has more um, more substance behind it than previous uh, statements. You, 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 you sometimes wonder if the the people. Uh, who are being named are the ones who are putting uh, out the news that they're under consideration. Uh, that does not seem to be the case this time. Well, as I said, our our listeners right now are probably hollering at their iPods saying, yeah, that was the guy, or no, you jerks, that wasn't the guy. But uh, let's talk about it more yeah. later on yeah. when we know yeah. for sure. And, and, of course, you know, once that once the nominee is named, and of course, once he or she is confirmed, uh, then we can talk some more. Yeah. They'll be vetted by UCAP. 
That's right. They, exactly. Absolutely. That's right. <clears throat> we'll have to send them, you know, pages and pages of questions. Mm-hmm. Well, our friends at the TSA are at it again. Uh, apparently yeah. not not content to just kind of sit out the rest of this uh, remaining uh, lame duck period. Uh, the TSA is, has once again um, issued some some new security rules and procedures, and this is just I mean this is just kind of amazing. Um, let me see if I'm summarizing it correctly. They now want all general aviation pilots who are based at airports which have scheduled airlines to now go through a background check um, yeah. and, uh, and pass and, it correctly and quote unquote pass the background check, which I want to know what that means. All right. Well, but, uh, yeah, I've been through a couple of these TSA background checks for, for differing reasons, shall we say. What's disqualifying? I mean, what, what, well, I don't know <laughs> is the quick answer. <clears throat> they will look you at listener. Yeah, right. I know. Yeah. You listen to that podcast, uh, you're a suspect. It's called a, a criminal history background check, first yeah. of all. So they will look, um, they're not so much concerned about, you know, reckless driving or something like that. They are concerned about things like, um, uh, you know, financial fraud, uh, firearms uh, misuse, um, uh, things of this sort. Um in in the in an instance where they find something in a criminal history background check that uh, raises a yellow flag or something, then that um, that finding is I won't say adjudicated, but it is is um, uh, dealt with on a one-on-one basis. And most of this stuff is automated these days. Um, but if if something you know if the computer starts beeping. Um, then they will, you know, dive more more fully into the situation, and it is entirely possible that uh, even if uh, a pilot has a criminal history uh, that comes up in such a background check, that he or she would still be allowed to uh, do whatever voodoo it is that TSA won't doesn't want you to do without this background check. Right. I'll tell you what's uh, involved, though, and that is. Yeah. Because um, I've and had to go through you, a yeah, lot of these. Yeah, Fareed, you probably have too. Every time I change jobs, they got to yep. check to make sure that I yep. haven't joined Peace Fresno or something like that. And, right, right. Um, and that is, it's. A, I think they go back five years. If you want a badge at an airport, criminal background check, the sheriff's department usually does it, and they fingerprint you. They give you a badge. How much does it cost you, Fareed? Um, well, I don't know how much it costs because the company has always paid for yeah. it, but I'm assuming uh-huh. somewhere under 50 bucks, I'm sure. Yeah, it sometimes, you know, it ranges from, I've heard 125, I've heard 50, I've heard, you know, in between. Part, part of it depends on whether you have to be fingerprinted to go right. along with the background well, check. You, you always have to be fingerprinted to conduct right. a background check. But it depends on where and by whom you're fingerprinted and whether um, that facility that agency charges for the fingerprinting uh and then once the forms are filled out there there it's uh, it's all done by computer and all that stuff is si- shipped off through the system and the, yeah, some most the, of it comes back instantaneously the tsa is not ready for this because my sim partner when i started at at uh, my new job back in in march he had to wait for almost three months he had a planned uh, vacation for six weeks but he was trying to get in at least one 
tour before he left. And he went, he did, he, he got the background check. He went to the sheriff's department in Phoenix where he had, did the fingerprints. TSA lost him. And instead of, you know, and, and then he had to start all over again. And it was a real pain in the butt. Imagine that. And this is, we're talking about a pilot that has the resources of a, a practicing company out there that does this all the time with 400 right. pilots. Right. You get... How many ever uh, general aviation pilots are associated with scheduled airline airports all crushing the system? I mean, these sheriff's departments are going to be right. up in arms. and yeah. All right. This is an agency out of bleeping control. It is. All right? It is. They are completely out of control. First off, this rule was issued as a directive. There was no public notice. There was no notice of proposed rulemaking, no opportunity <laughs> for anybody to comment uh, on the stupidity and the uselessness of this, because at those same airports, anybody with a license and an airplane can legally fly in as a transient. So it is, it is beyond stupid that well, a background check is going to save anything. Yeah, well, what's second, what, Dave, is, well, pilots have been doing, pilots at airports that have commercial air service where they are physically separated that is, the GA stuff's on one side of the field, and the airline stuff's on the other, have been going along fat, dumb, and happy with no issues for years. That CETA There's has been no respected for many years, yeah. Exactly. There's it no has. reason for this. So, and, and, and I keep laughing every time I hear about this background check, which is part of the proposal for the large aircraft security program for these poor nummies that own aircraft that weigh 12,501 pounds or more at takeoff are going to be subjected to the same requirement to fly their personal aircraft anywhere right. if this rule comes to pass. I'm trying to figure out what a background check is supposed to stop because all... 18 of the 19 terrorists that struck us on would September have 11, 2001, right. would have passed the right. bleeping background right. check. Yeah. 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 Let me, so let me hey, hey, hang on a second. Right. Back to reality. There, there's I'd like there's to back to one reality. thing that, that yeah, back yeah. Like a civil agency that works for the public on, He's on a roll, Jim. and doesn't chase shadow ideas. Jeb, go ahead. There's one thing that unites all of this activity, and it comes down to one word, and that word is money. Yeah. People have to pay to have these checks conducted. People make money when the checks are conducted. There are contractors that are, that are doing this on the TSA's behalf, and I don't know anything about the instant case, but I know that there is no justification. There is no identifiable threat that the TSA has. There's no threat the TSA has identified that this will uh, address. There is no history of general aviation pilots uh, habitually transgressing into the CIDA. There is no uh, instances of... Um, security breaches resulting from general aviation pilots um, uh, uh, getting into the side. So all of this has is is make work. All of this is more mission creep being being uh, uh, foisted on us by the TSA. Uh, all of this is just one more attempt to you know corporatize um, uh, the federal government and make it. Um, 
more responsive to the corporations, to business uh, that makes money off of the government than responsive to the citizens. Hey, listen, I explained it. Go ahead, Jeb, and then I'm gonna, we're going to move I, on. I, that's pretty much all I needed to say. I um, explained this to you last week. I, tr- I explained this to you last week. This is all the airlines trying to make things I, as difficult uh, as possible and, and, for and general this aviation. instance, you might have... You might I'm have, smiling uh, a little bit as I say that, just so people know. There might be something to that, Jack, in this instance. But um, what... What happens here is is the transient pilots. If you if you're based at uh, Manassas, Virginia, which it does not have uh, scheduled service, and you fly up to Dallas under this security directive, um, Dallas, of course, does have commercial service, scheduled service. Um, then you have to be escorted. But if you're based at Dallas, then you have to go through this background check. Um, one facet of it i.e. the need to conduct the escorts, may well, in fact, be a result of FBO staff or not having enough FBO staff to escort the general aviation pilots based at that airport. I don't know. Well, this profit profit motive jumped out in the large aircraft security program proposal when they noted quite pointedly that the background checks are going to be through private companies that will be TSA approved, and the passenger vetting, because passengers on those aircraft are going to have to be checked against the terrorist watch list, a service that will be provided by private companies that right. the TSA will pr- approve. The financial burden that they say in the proposal is they estimate the cost of this to be approximately 200 million annually, 85% of which will be borne by the aircraft owners. So we've got a $170 million a year business welfare program that does not solve a security problem because there's not a security problem that exists except in this very small minds of the very small people at the TSA. Um, Farid, you put on the list um, an item for us to talk about. You said former TSA coordinator for 135 operator offers opinions on proposed TSA security rules for GA. Would that be you? Uh, That would be me. As Dave said, the first problem is I'm almost out of beer, but uh, I don't know if the TSA can solve that one. Uh Uh (laughs) So, what is your perspective? You obviously have a a, a, you know a perspective of of, you know like a real real perspective. You've been involved with this stuff, and you fly you fly the kind of airplane that's subject to these this stuff. What's your take on the whole thing? I am TSA trained. Before I took my current job, I worked at a at an operator. You seem like such a nice guy to me too. Oh well. Before I was at at the pre at my previous job, I was a um, I, I was a TSA coordinator at the 135 operation I had. Yeah. I was chief pilot and director of operations, and I became TSA trained by reading their book that you download off the internet, and that was it. And then I trained all the other people. Nobody came in. Nobody conducted a training. I appointed myself as the 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 king poobah of the operation, and I had to train all the other employees. What, and that's it. What time? When was this? What year was this? This was uh, 2004 through 2008. Uh-huh. And uh, they, the thing is, is that I, the, I would communicate with an office. They had regional offices, and half the time when I tried to get updates about things, I never got responses back from these people in the TSA and so on and so forth. And uh, it, it's really messed up. I, I mean, they're just throwing paper around at each other. 
and for for all the protections they show tell the public that they have it's really pretty thin as far as this effort it's a big paper shuffle and it's it just gets in the way of operations as opposed to really protecting anything mm-hmm. it, um, on a typical 135 flight, you're supposed to have someone who's the ground security coordinator, and then you have the flight security coordinator, and then you have the overall security coordinator, and everybody's supposed to watch everybody else. And if one of those is missing, then somebody else can stand in for the other one. So uh, <laughs> it, I, I, you know, frequently it's a, in smaller operations, um, these people share or people have wear more than one hat. Yeah. Well, this oh, is that, this. Is, yeah. This is all headed in a direction. I mean, you look at it in the long view, and this isn't rampant paranoia on my part. This is just seeing the progression, the mission creep, as Jeb put it. Uh, We've gone from only companies that fly for hire, people that they don't know, having to, uh, the 12,500-pound security program, having to vet passengers, having to put flight crews through security background checks, and the 121 crews, the big airline, the bigger iron guys, all their pilots have had to go through this, to now we're going to expand this to about 15,000 privately owned aircraft flown, part, 190, uh, part 91, where they don't fly for hire, where they don't fly with strange people they don't know, to, oh, well, if you even are flying, if you're based at an aircraft with commercial service, you're going to have to be background checked. But if you're transient, that's okay. Well, the next step is, if you're transient, that's not okay, unless you've had the background check. And by the way, we should just maybe expand expand this to everybody, because we don't know which one of you might go off at any particular moment, and I'm one inch away from going off right now. Except (laughs) I don't want to fly an airplane into something. I want to throw a whiskey bottle at the next TSA guy I see. (laughs) Sure. Fareed, for people who don't know, you are your day job is a uh, as as a, a CJ three pilot for a fractional ownership company. So you're really out there on the front lines of this whole thing, as far as this new LASP, this large aircraft security program, is concerned. Yeah. What What's your take on this? What's the buzz in your industry about CJ? This doesn't thing? fall under it. If Fareed was a private owner of that CJ, it's above the twelve five. He, oh, really? Okay. It is above it. It's it is uh, above it, right? So it's it is above twelve five. A CJ? Yeah. CJ three. Yeah, CJ3 oh, is, I'm sorry. is yeah, uh, for, uh, ramp weight or max gross takeoff weight is 13,870. Um, I'm wrong there. I, so I'm what's surprised, your take on this whole thing? I'm surprised to remember that. Um, the, the, take, <laughs> <laughs> the take being is that I've worked for operators. I've flown King Air 350s. I've worked for, for, for private 91 operations. I've worked for small 135s. That's I described where I was an actual 135 TSA coordinator because we had to have that position even though I had held many hats. It's very um, obtrusive regulations that really – the only thing they do is to create more work for the people who want to operate them, more expense, and they really don't increase security not one bit. Mm-hmm. Well, and it bears remembering that these people didn't want us allowed back into the air after 911, period. Yeah. And we were the only people to trust where we were not the problem. The, sure. the, it's a big splash is what they're looking for. They've always looked for that. And they don't get it with the size of airplanes that we're, f- we're flying. However, I'm starting not to believe that America is, is, is still the, the, the freest guys around because I'm oh. telling you, our way of life is, is just being encroached upon. And it's, 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 it's happening exponentially now instead of a slow creep like it was up until 9-11. I, I invite <clears throat> any of our listeners to look for the dictionary definition of fascism. Hmm. 
not 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 the popular one, but the dictionary definition. Right. Well, right. Uh, some people that, think things that, are about to change. Well, what's going on immediately as is that as the Bush administration comes to an, an ignominious end, uh, they're ramming through as much of these uh, um, controlling regulations as they can. This particular item that we're talking about with respect to air carrier airports happens to be a security directive, uh, which is a completely different animal from uh, a rule uh, as, as we have come to know it coming down from the FAA or, or some other federal agency. Basically, mean- basically, a security directive is, is a memorandum uh, that... Yeah, that goes into um, a goes in with a you know, basically a binder, a three ring binder, with a bunch of other security directives and memoranda on how uh, TSA regulated entities, those required to hold security programs, uh, will conduct uh, their security programs. And this security directive is directed at the airport operator and describes what the airport operator, you know, the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, for example, if you're considering uh, Washington, D.C. airports, what that airport authority must do to remain in compliance with the regulation. So not only is it not a regulation, it's a backdoor way to uh, increase the TSA's authority and not coincidentally, again, increase the income to uh, those agencies uh, to, to whom uh, uh, TSA, with whom con- uh, TSA contracts, but we're also seeing that um, with respect to the Washington D.C. ADIS, and I'm going to s- Jack segue into another topic Please here. Please do, yeah. Uh, and that is uh, the this week or recently, I should say, uh, the FAA announced that the uh, Washington D.C. ADIS and uh, uh, the aircraft, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Air Defense Identification Zone and the Flight Restricted Zone, also known as the Freeze, which uh, were quote-unquote temporary, um, are now going to be made permanent by regulation. This is one more example of the Bush administration ramming through uh, rules um, in the last minute um, and trying to leave their legacy, uh, and I, I put the word legacy in quotes also, uh, for uh, the future. Um, it, it's, um, um, it's, it's, on, one, on one way, it's just very, very sad, as Farid has, has correctly noted, what's become of this country over the last several years. Um, I don't know. There is, there is a provision in federal law with respect to rules that are are rammed through in the last weeks, months of a presidential administration. And there is a mechanism by which Congress can overturn those regulations. But Simple majority. Well, it's it's you know, I, I don't know all the mechanics of it, but basically I think it's all it's an all or nothing proposition on Congress's part. Um and then the independent, the individual agencies—I should not independent agencies, but the individual agencies—can then go back and promulgate the regulation again if they so choose. Um, I'm optimistic. I have no information whatsoever on which to base my optimism, but I am optimistic that this and other similar regulations might be part of such an eventual uh, effort by Congress uh, come January, February. 
So. And, and and if if they are not, if there if such legislation does go through, and um, uh, this and some other uh, regulations out there are not part of such a, a, a act by Congress, then uh, some of the aviation trade associations need to have a, a conversation. Yeah. We could we could subtitle this the uh, the uh, disturbing regulations show. Um, another Merry one. Christmas, folks. Yeah, I know. Another one. I'm uh, officially out of beer now. <laughs> <laughs> another one that uh, that came to light in the last few days uh, is uh, our friends in the Great White North, uh, in this case, Canada. Um, have apparently um, passed a rule or put a rule in place um, that requires a new piece of equipment um, in Canadian aircraft and are are going to require American planes, transient planes, to have Jack, the same piece of equipment. What's the deal here? I'm just confused. I can, That's correct. I can speak to that uh, just to, from a real-world example, and that is is that um, you know I, I have a 172, which I can fly up to Sanderson Field, ANJ, uh, which is the Sault Ste. Marie U.S. airport. But if I have an instrument problem and I can't go into uh, Chippewa International, which is an old air base south of there, my, my other um, alternate is Sioux Canada, which is, only, which is within the Class D of – or actually Ander- Sanderson Field is within the Class D of Sioux Canada. But uh, I can't even use that as an alternate if I don't spend the money to get this new 406 um, ELT. That's really interesting. And, yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I didn't realize until now, but I'm immediately affected by it. And I just want yeah, a quick sure. sh- show note. Um, I'll put in the forums, there is an interview with somebody who, who deals with these 406 that EA Radio did a couple of years ago, explains the whole new style of, tra- of a ELT, if you're, if you're interested. I'll put that, I'll, I'll make that available. What's going I'll, I'll on? see if I can find a link to my, I, I recently did an article for Avionics News about this uh, equipment. Yeah. Uh, right. The requirement and the logic behind dollars. it. Yeah, well, what's going on is is the the uh, multinational agency that is tasked with satellite based monitoring of ELT signals around the world on February one will discontinue monitoring of of what we call in the U.S. the the legacy or traditional. Um, ELTs that transmit on 121.5 megahertz and 243.0 megahertz in favor of the newer technology digital uh, 406 megahertz ELTs. Um, The FAA here in the United States, obviously, uh, has chosen so far not to require 406 ELTs. Um, re- irrespective of the the wisdom of that choice, Canada, on the other hand, has chosen to, in fact, require 406 ELTs. And they are structuring their rule in such a fashion that even um, foreign registered aircraft, i.e. aircraft registered outside of Canada, must comply with that regulation in Canada. And, that, so, and, and, and that's, that's, that's what transit their airspace. Right. That's what's hamstringing uh, Faree. That would be what's hamstringing me if I wanted to go into Canada. I'm not going to do that until the spring, by the way. Um, oh, it's lovely. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But you could snowmobile from the U.S. to Canada right now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> without without a four hundred six ELT, by the way. Uh, but that's that's what's going on in a nutshell. The the, the AOPA uh, and FAA and, and other agencies, uh, other organizations here in the U.S. 
in their wisdom, and I'm not really. I'm kind of, of of both minds on this on this 406 ELT I'm rule. I'm not convinced wisdom's yeah. the right word here. Yeah, uh, I'm not convinced wisdom is the right thing either. Um, so far, at least in the United States, a 406 ELT is not required. Um, I, I kind of question the whole need for an ELT. I think maybe once or twice a year will uh, an aircraft actually be found by using uh, its ELT in the United States, if, if in fact that many. So many aircraft uh, crash in the immediate vicinity of an airport and, and are found almost immediately or, uh, uh, or the next day, and by which time the ELT is, is probably expired, any of the ELT batteries worn itself down, things like that. I, I, I read a lot of accident reports, as, as I'm sure uh, uh, three of you guys know, and I don't recall reading one within the last couple of three years. Well, is the 406 thing long? designed to, re- to resolve that? Is it supposed to be well, better technology? Well, let, let, me, let me finish it my is. thought, then. I'll come back to the, to the question. I'm not, I don't require ever reading an accident report in the last three or four years in which an ELT was tracked and the wreckage of the aircraft was found solely by by using that ELT signal. Now... Is the 406 standard uh, su- uh, superior to the older 121-243 standard? Absolutely it is. Yeah. First of all, it's digital. Secondly, it uses less power from the, uh, the ELT battery. Thirdly, uh, you can encode into that 406 digital signal um, the end number of the aircraft and, and the serial number of the ELT itself which is then uh, made available um, at the ground station, the satellite uh, uh, ground stations. They know exactly which aircraft has crashed and have a much better resolution on its location in a much shorter period of time than is possible even today with the 121-243 technology. If you connect the 406 ELT to a GPS, it will also give it will also transmit the um, last known latitude longitude position of the aircraft. What more could you ask for? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I come back to my earlier statement, however, in that these days with the modern surveillance and tracking and communication systems at least as they exist in the lower 48 um an elt is something that may have outlived its usefulness in canada in alaska um not so much mm-hmm. because of the remote nature of so many aviation operations but um, I don't know. I, 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 as I say, I'm of two minds on that topic. Yeah. So, ELT didn't help Steve Fawcett either. So I mean, didn't, that's what didn't I was going to say. Didn't help Steve Fawcett a bit, and uh, didn't help JFK Jr. a bit either. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it, there's there's been some improvements in the technology of the impact switching. Yes, that's come into play with these new ELTs because the old ELT style ELTs weren't required to have it. Uh, in replacing the ELT in a uh, aircraft that we once owned, we were faced with the biennial battery replacement requirement and found that the cost of replacing the battery for the particular model that we had was more expensive than replacing the entire ELT with a newer unit that had, A, 
a panel switching control, a panel mounted switching control, so that if I survived a crash and the ELT hadn't triggered, all I had to do was push a button. Second, it was powered by six D-cell Duracell batteries. And by the approval on that ELT, they had to be Duracells and they had to be date stamped. I carried extra Duracells with me because the ELT was removable and would accept a microphone input so that if I heard search and rescue, I could also transmit my voice and say, hey, guys, I'm over by the river. I'm in the canyon. I'm next to the tree line, which the old-style ELTs would not allow you to do. So it was portable, and if the batteries, it would run for 48 hours on the T-cells, and I could pop six new ones in if I had survived and get new ones. It also had a different style of crash switch inside. The new ELTs, the 406s, have much better crash switch switches. Uh, the non-GPS-enabled ones are detect- detected more quickly uh, and with a more finite search area right off the bat than the old 121-243s. And as Jeb said, if it's uh, GPS-enabled, it narrows the search area down to about the size of a, of a football stadium as opposed to about 10-mile by 10-mile area of the old ELT. Uh, 406 by itself without GPS narrows the search area down to a much smaller area just inherently. So since we've got to carry one by regulation, uh, next airplane, if it doesn't have a 406, it's damn well getting one right off the bat because I'm not flying around on something that won't get me found even if it works. Well, if I had to replace my ELT, I would definitely get a 406. That's a no-brainer. Right well, there now, are units available now for about 800 bucks that are non-GPS. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you can buy a conventional or, or legacy ELT for maybe 250 bucks. Yeah. Uh, maybe less. I haven't priced them lately. Uh, 185 Okay. The 406s, um, and you might be able to get one cheaper than 800 I'm thinking five or 600 for a 406 but um, um, and, but they go up from there in, in, yeah. in, in uh, capability and in features and uh, and things of this sort um, if you want the full boat um, a 406 elt with GPS um, tied to your panel mounted GPS um, that's going to get into maybe 2500. Thirty-three, three grand, um, in in the way of money to do all that because of the labor involved, and and in fact you, you're mentioning uh, Dave the the panel mounted switching, um, that's an, a new standard, yes, um, for ELTs. It's a it's a different TSO. It's a subsequent TSO to the original one, and uh, all all ELTs installed in like the last ten or twelve or fifteen years or something like that must have had. A, um, uh, a panel-mounted switching unit right. uh, uh, on-off armed uh, installed with, with the unit itself. But uh, it was uh, brand new when we put ours in. And 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 what bothers me about that is that there are a lot of airplanes out there that have just had the ELT battery replaced. Right. right. So they don't have that benefit. 
and and they may not even have even really been been tested. I mean, a lot of the tests uh, that are conducted during annual inspections consist of um, tripping the um, um, the arm switch on the ELT and listening. Some some units put out an audi- audible uh, signal. Other units you have to kind of listen to the ship's radio twenty one five to see if it's putting out a signal. Uh, and if you're doing that in a hangar, um, you know, you really don't know if you're getting a signal uh, beyond, very far beyond the airplane. So a lot of these ELT tests, uh, a lot of these ELTs that are tested, I should say, may not actually work as advertised. Well, the newer um, there, now, there are the alternatives. all have to, external antennas, too, which right. is another plus. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things here, too, we gotta, is... We've got to move on here. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Right. I will, I will. There are alternatives, and we'll talk about personal locator beacons or PLBs uh, in a subsequent episode. But um, if you want 406, but you don't want to go to the expense of, and you're, and you're happy with your one, your legacy ELT, but you, you want 406 and you don't want to go to the big bucks, uh, there are some alternatives out there. Okay. Yeah. Right. Fareed, what is your story about jets and uncontrolled airports? I don't want uh, our general aviation brethren to be scared of jets when they uh, report entering the pattern or coming into the area uh, because I go into a fair number of uncontrolled airports when I'm working in the Mm CJ-3. And I will tell you a story of a trip from Houston area to Watsonville, California, which if you go to episode 99, Jack Hodson will tell, talk about uh, his trip with uh, with Will uh, flying up uh, out of Watsonville. And I actually... Great airport, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a hotbed of activity. Well, Watsonville from Houston is 1,439 nautical miles. And it is at the, the it's at the edge of the range of the CJ3. We had two people on board, 4,500 pounds of fuel, 4.7 hours of flight time at 45,000 feet uh, in the middle of November. Let's just say that we were testing out the the true range yeah. of this thing. We were running at 91% on the engine, so we were in long range cruise as they call it, and we went uh, over El Paso, over Phoenix, and then uh, Palm Springs. And then up through the valley, um, the whole time we were checking to see what we were going to land with. We were considering fuel stops. And um, needless to say, we arrived in the area with about 1,200 pounds. So we were looking good. Um, if, we would, if we got below 900, we were going to have to file paperwork with our company. It doesn't mean we were in trouble fuel-wise. But when you get down there with a jet, uh, it's, it yeah. starts to get... Uh, iffy, and then of course I started calling about 15 miles out, 12 miles out, and there wasn't that many people reporting in a pattern. But our TCAS looked like a um, uh, we have uh, a blue and and yellow. Blue is good, yellow is is getting bad, and red is really bad. So it looked like spring flowers on our TCAS. <laughs> okay, <laughs> around Watsonville, which is north of Monterey, is so, you know up the coast, and so I'm I'm announcing, and I can say, hey, this is what we're planning on, and of course. We're planning on landing to the north, I think it was on runway two, because that's what the wind said, but everybody's using two zero. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, guys. Well, we'll go along with that, and we'll keep announcing, but there's, there's velocities in the pattern. There's 172s. There's uh, all manner of airplanes in and out of the pattern. It's pretty busy. 
And we, we keep going, and then finally we figure out that we can't get into the pattern, so we have to circle around, come back in, and land. Um, but it, suddenly everybody disappeared, but that's after we did 1360 over the coast and then came back in. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in that, in that case, we're running low on fuel. Sometimes, as I've talked with some of my colleagues who, uh, uh, at the company, is that you just got to say, hey, we're coming in. We don't have the fuel for this. We got to land. Um, and we'd appreciate the, uh, the uh, cooperation of our piston brethren. However, there have been a lot of places we've arrived, and we're only one of two people in the pattern, someone in a 172, who certainly could easily stay on a downwind and land, but we're calling maybe three miles away. Oh, we'll extend, we'll, we'll do a 360, whatever. He said, no, go about your business, because we've already considered you half the time. Mm-hmm. We've considered what you're doing, what you've announced, and we'll adjust our pattern to fit in with you. So general aviation pilots... Um, work with work with us, but don't fear us when you're uh, arriving in a pattern because it's everybody's pattern. And we yeah. we brief right. the arrival. We we brief. We're going to enter a downwind. There's someone else there. We don't come straight in every time. I don't I don't know, Fareed, that if it's fear as much as it is uh, some understanding that uh, when you're flying a jet into an uncontrolled, uh, I should say, a non-towered aircraft uh, airport or a smaller airport than you're used to using, um, I, I would at least like to think that the local pilots know that you've really got your hands full, that you're, you're outside of your, your comfort zone, and they would rather get out of your way and let you do your thing without having to worry about them then they are really scared of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I would say that it's 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 unfamiliarity, V-Ref not on, fear. What was V ref on your approach there? Do you remember? Yeah, uh, V ref is ninety two. Yes, yeah. that's a slow yeah. airplane. Yeah, that is a <laughs> yeah. slow airplane. Yeah, okay. Fareed, here's my question because I I think a lot of it has to do with unfamiliarity, which is sort of what Jeb was yeah. saying. Mm-hmm. Um, give us, you know, the the. In just a, we don't have an awful lot of time here. Um, otherwise, we'd go into this in a lot, a lot of depth. But how do you fly the pattern? How do you arrive at an un, a non-tower aircraft airport differently than a 172 does? What, what what should we expect from an aircraft like yours? The only thing expect that when we arrive in the pattern, we're going to be around 200 knots because that's typically the reconfiguration speed of an airplane. We're also going to be 500 feet above the normal traffic pattern. However, uh, any typical crew operating a jet will have briefed the arrival ahead of time and been monitoring the frequency. And so, therefore, um, if there's other planes in the pattern, we're going to enter on a 45 just like anybody else. And so, although it might seem like you are sort of overlapping other aircraft in the pattern, you actually are timing it out so that you descend in in sequence in a proper order? Right. Yeah, we're listening. We we we're trying to figure out where we can fit in with all the other aircraft. It's just that I've seen some some airplanes do some pretty unnecessary uh, uh, rerouting. Gyrations. <laughs> yeah, gyrations. <laughs> and I I know that I've had uh, students who just gotten all turned around when well, they yeah. heard. When you and make I your say, announcements, hey, when you make your announcements um, in in the pattern, do you typically also call out, you know, what aircraft you expect to eventually be behind? Because you're not, you're obviously not in trail with all the other aircraft that are in the yeah. pattern. Um, well, but but you know, you have a good idea of where you're going to end up. I'm going to end up behind the the red Cessna, you know, or whatever. Um, do you announce that so that people know what to expect? As we're entering, the, as we're finally entering the pattern, as we're out there, we say. 
how far we are away and what runway we're int- intending for. And then, and then as we're about to enter the pattern, then we join the pattern and we usually say number two, number three, mm-hmm. number 14, whatever, uh, depending on if you're at Watsonville. I mean, it's, it's one <laughs> <Yeah>. of those. <laughs> on a Saturday um, afternoon, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it was a um, – so I, we're, we're just doing the, the typical uh, uh, etiquette that any, you know, two piston pilots would have mm-hmm. amongst sure. one another. And we're just following the same thing. It's something that I've always taught is that you don't say – you don't mention left downwind, left base or anything until you've actually entered the pattern. When you are yeah. three miles, five miles away – it's how far you are away, what direction, mm-hmm. and then, of course, what's the intended runway of landing. Leave out all that other stuff because someone who didn't get your whole transmission may think that you are actually on top or below them. There you go. Yeah. Right. As, uh, I've got uh, quite, a, quite a bit of time going into uncontrolled airports, and I always start monitoring traffic at about 50 miles out uh, to see what they're using because – as you as you noted, what the winds favor isn't always what the right. locals choose. To Did you say fifty five zero? Five zero. I start listening at five zero. Yeah. Yeah, but five zero miles out, you're hearing so many other airports that are using. Good that luck on a frequency. sunny day. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, but if if the people are calling traffic, they're calling traffic and identifying the airport that they're flying traffic. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're careful, you can definitely pick them out. But boy, it's going to be pick out the ones. I start making the call. At thirty. Wow. That's a little bit extreme for me. I I don't. Uh, I, I'll call. Um, I'll start listening ten twenty to fifteen out. I'll call at ten out if I'm able. If I'm not talking to approach or somebody else, um, but I always call by five out, and I'm I'm always listening by ten out. Mm-hmm. And. You know. I'd start calling at 30, yeah. I'd call again at 20, then yeah. again at 10, 5, and 3, and then when I was in the pattern. Uh, one of the reasons for this, I got in the habit of this because the, uh, the airport where I got my ticket had a practice area just to the west, which also happened to be on the instrument approach. I mean, just to the east, which happened to be on the instrument approach. And it had a helicopter school that always used the west side of the airport as a non-standard pattern area uh and so you could have non-standard traffic coming in and out of things like the grassy area on one side and uh people in the practice area between my arrival and the runway so like i said i'd start listening at 50 i'd start calling at 30 uh mostly because i knew it would make other people nervous and they'd speak up and Dave, this dovetails on. This is in your backyard. Colonel Jabara is right next to, is just north of Beachfield, and of course north of the airbase, uh, south of there. And read the notes on on the the airport diagram because uh, there's left and right patterns for many reasons, right. and one is not yeah. to get tied up with with uh, the pattern out of Beachfield, which is towered, and yeah. Jabara is uncontrolled. Yeah. Jabara Jabara can be a very uh, busy piece of airspace because you can have tankers or even Air Force One in the pattern on the arrival from McConnell Air Force Base about three miles, four miles to the south, southwest. Uh, Beach is about two miles to the south, and Jabara's pattern is all on the west side. Yes. 
and yeah. lower. So you've got arriving traffic above you. You've got arriving traffic to beach just to the east of the airport. And then you've got McConnell's traffic, which is about a thousand feet higher. And, uh, it can be a little unnerving to find yourself suddenly, uh, crossing two arrivals for two other airports and have one of them be a beach jet and another one be an Air Force One mm-hmm. coming yeah, in. Down- and the downwind three, for one right at ICT is 5,000 feet above you there, too. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> yeah. that's right. Three things real quick. Okay. One, we're going to move on. Um, uh, one, listen. It's important to, to broadcast your position and your intentions when approaching a non-tired facility, but it's even more important to listen and get a good mental picture of what the other traffic in the area is doing and where they are and where they're, more, more importantly, where they're going to be. Second yeah. point, don't be spouting off, well, we're at the final approach fix for a runway, yada, yada, yada. That doesn't help anybody. It certainly doesn't help the, the, the 15 hour student pilot out doing touch and goes because he doesn't know what a final approach fix is. Yeah. Uh, you're five miles, you're seven miles on a straight in approach or something like that. Um, and then finally, um, listen, don't talk. You know, listen to what's going on out there. Now, Jack, do you want do you want me to force Dave to utter the word "suck out of my nose"? <laughs> sure, go ahead. Okay. Well, here's 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 how I would do that. I would simply point out that the reason that he is able to give position reports at twenty, fifteen, ten, and, and five miles and three miles out is because he is moving so much more slowly than I am, and I simply not, don't have not, the time. To Not give that, those, that many reports. I'm Not kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, we got to move and, on here. And we and are... Of course, the, the really tough part for Jeb was I was doing it at so much less fuel per hour, too. <laughs> oh, yes. See, I had all this energy built up, so my, my power was so far back, I was just kind of zooming on by, just kind of a whoosh. It was almost like a, a space <laughs> no, shuttle. The... Don't start with me, guys. I know. I know. I know. I know. I would. I would. I would STF you right now. We are definitely reaching the end. We are definitely reaching the end of our allotted time here. We have to move along. Shoutouts. We've got one here from. This is a posting from the forums from a listener who goes by the name of Great Blue. I won't read the whole thing here, but he posts about a four sort of longish paragraph posting, telling us that he. The first pair. I want to thank you for inspiring me to complete my primary flight training, and we just couldn't be happier. Congratulations to Great Blue. Way to go, dude. I told you on a post. Uh, but, uh, boy, you make our day. Uh, we had one a little over a week p- earlier than you. Uh, makes it all worthwhile. Way to go. So uh, that's awesome. Everyone should look at his re- his uh, his posting. He tells a little bit of a story about some of his intentions and plans, and uh, it's just incredibly gratifying to hear these kinds of stories that that we are communicating a little bit of our passion for flight to you folks. Uh, that's just awesome. Uh, Farid, you've got a couple here. What what do you got? I'll run through them real quick. First, my chapter treasure, EA-22 chapter treasure, Red Bainbridge. Uh, he's kind of my security man for my home when I'm gone, 
And uh, he he snowblowed the entire driveway for me uh, le- during last week's snowpocalypse when I was gone. Well, that's so, a phrase you just don't hear very often where we live. Uh, he snowblowed our driveway. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I thank him for, you know, he didn't have to do that, uh, but he came in and he, and he also drove in and out of the driveway a couple times to make sure that there were tire tracks going in and out of the driveway as well. So a, a man of detail. Uh-huh. And the other thing is, is my friend that I mentioned in episode 99 who had gotten his uh, his ticket after we started way back in 1990. He's got two iPhone apps for pilots. One is called Pilot Prep, where you can actually uh, you can practice answering the, the the written test through your iPhone. It just constantly quizzes you, and he's got several levels: private, commercial, and instrument, and so on out there, including all the uh, uh, the figures that you need to consult. And he's got a new one called Pilot FAR, which has all the FARs: 121, 135, 91, 61. All on your iPod or your iPhone if you want it, mm-hmm. and that's and that's all. The pilot prep is that's what it's called out there. Nick Hodap is the is the uh, is the um, uh, programmer and pilot pilot far and uh, um, those those two are available from him. And I still have to send him his headset. <laughs> those sound cool. I have to check out those iPhone apps. That's great. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Jeb. Dave, any shoutouts? One shout out, one request. Uh, the 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 uh, discussion about iPhone apps uh, uh, triggered something. Uh, I just recently upgraded my phone to a, a Windows smartphone, and uh, I'm kind of scratching my head as to what might be some good apps to put on it. Um, and I, so far, I haven't really found anything. If any of our listeners have some recommendations, um, you know, please feel free to share them. I would certainly appreciate it. I'm still uh, wait for you to define TTFN, but you know that's another. Oh story. yeah, that's that's right. TTFN is indeed ta-ta for now. Those who um, um, are speculating that it has something to do with uh, a mammary gland uh, or, or a pair of, of mammary glands. Um, uh, sadly, uh, you are uh, in error, but only ever so slightly. Uh, the, the thought is appreciated. Um, uh, and I, I, I have to, convince, I have to uh, confess, I should say, that I really hadn't thought of it in those terms until you brought it to my attention. And now you can think of nothing else. <laughs> and now I can think of, of very little else. Finally, I do have a shout-out. Yeah. Uh, Nick Carlucci, mm-hmm. uh, who is, um, I don't know if he's like the, Air, the AOPA airport-designated uh, guy here at Venice, Florida, but if he's not, he should. He, he needs to get much more formal recognition. He is, in fact, the the head honcho of the uh, Venice Airport Society Incorporated, an acronym that conveniently decodes to VASI. Um, but uh, he is just a dynamo, and and uh, is the Venice Florida Airport is is one of those uh, uh, small non-towered facilities that um, uh, is kind of hated by the community and uh, the, some, especially the real estate development types in the community would just love to see it dry up, dry up and go away. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's been here much longer than most other fixtures in the community. It's got FAA grant money, so it's not going away. But that doesn't mean the local community can't make life hell for the base pilots there. Well, Nick um, has been navigating those those treacherous waters uh, of local politics for some time now. Clearly knows what he's doing. Clearly has uh, um, um, 
insight on how to go about doing it. Clearly has some wins under his belt, and uh, it's it's I've, I've spent some time, some quality time with him uh, uh, in the last month or so on, on several occasions, and uh, um, just just uh, a joy to be around. And uh, uh, as I say, every airport should have somebody like him. David, yeah. anything? Dave, two shout-outs from Dave. First off, this is a shout-out to all of our listeners and all fellow aviators that might have to pick up on this. Uh, this Christmas is the 40th anniversary of Apollo 8. Oh, yeah. If you're that's... not familiar with the history, I encourage you strongly. One of the more moving moments of my teen years was listening to the uh, uh, salutations from the uh, Apollo 8 crew as they circled the moon ten times on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and came back to Earth alive, safe and sound, and on the ground eventually. Real real quickly, uh, just echoing something Dave said, uh, Apollo 8. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see that blast off, and like Dave, um, watched the uh, television coverage of it all. It was very momentous at the time. But, but um, if you have the access to... Uh, Netflix or some other DVD resource. Um, three or four or five years ago, HBO um, did a a mini series called "From the Earth to the Moon." Oh, fabulous! Tom Perfect Hanks. Stuff. Tom Hanks awesome was the executive producer and and narrated uh, the opening of each episode. But there's an episode in there called 1968, and it uh, discusses. Uh, just the, the culture and the politics and the assassinations and everything else that was going on in 1968, which culminated with Apollo 8. And uh, it's, it's one of the more moving and um, uh, descriptive episodes in that, uh, in that series, From the Earth to the Moon. And if you have the means, strongly suggest you rent that. The whole series is great. From the uh, the the, uh, the episode 1968 is the best of the bunch. Second is, if you're still shopping for a Christmas present for that would-be aviator out there, it's not too late to give them flight lessons. You'll be giving them the gift of flight, which is a gift to the rest of the world. You'll be able to introduce them to places that they never dreamed they'd go to, like Andalusia, Alabama, hmm. Gallipolis, Ohio, or Dead Cow International in Kansas, or Ponca City for breakfast. Uh it's a great gift. It's one that keeps on giving, and if you're really, really lucky, they'll take you for a ride when they're done. Merry sure. Christmas, everybody. Yeah. I've got two real quickly here. Uh, the first is uh, I'm going to be in the San Francisco Bay Area be tr- uh, from a well, actually for a couple of weeks. But uh, keep uh, the women and children locked up between, right after the first of the year. Um, I was sort of hoping that I could uh, get together with some of our listeners out there. I've already got tentative plans, tentative plans with a few. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to. I'm wondering if anybody would be interested in a UCAP meetup out in the San Francisco Bay Area, probably sometime between January 8th and January 12th. Um, if you're at all interested in this, why don't you send me an email at podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Um, I would love to hear suggestions on where we might gather, and then we'll just invite everybody to come on over, and we'll have coffee or whatever passes for lineys out there, and uh, and it'll be fun. The other... Uh, the other shout-out I have here is uh, to two of our good friends, two of our good podcasting friends, uh, Steve Tupper, uh, a.k.a. Stephen Force of the Airspeed Podcast, and Jason Miller of the Finer Points Podcast. 
both have become contributing bloggers to one of AOPA's blogs. It's called the Let's Go Flying blog, and uh, they are both making contributions out there uh, to uh, to this uh, new but cool-looking blog. I urge everyone to go check it out. Uh, it is at blog.aopa.org slash Let's Go Flying. Good stuff. I hope they're all making a whole bunch of money from doing that. Yeah, I'm sure they're. I'm sure they're in it for the money. That's that's why they're doing it. You no, know, that uh, that's true. But uh, check it out uh, if you are looking for even. And if you haven't checked out their podcasts, you absolutely absolutely should. But I imagine that everyone has. Well, it's definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, I want to thank you all, all you guys. It's uh, as always a blast to get together and talk with you. Thank you uh, to uh, Farid Guillot, uh, a.k.a. Al- Afterburner Al, who is the co-station manager for Air Ventures, uh, AirVenture Oshkosh's EAA radio. And he's also a Cessna CJ3 pilot for a fractional ownership company. You can learn more about Farid and his work at uh, airventure.org slash radio, or he lets you even send him an email at uh, Afterburner Al at comcast.net thanks for reading we enjoyed 172 pilot right that's right 172 pilot and there's two things i learned on the road one is that when you pull out the headphones on an iphone it pauses uncontrolled airspace so you don't miss anything the other thing i learned is that when you drop it on the treadmill you can always find it behind you <laughs> we also want to thank Dave Higdon, uh, who is an aviation photographer. He's also a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. You can learn more about Dave and his work at kitplanes.com and avbuyer.com slash world aircraft sales. And Jeb Burnside is a, uh, an aviation journalist. He's currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. And you can learn more about Jeb at jebburnside.com or aviationsafetymagazine.com. I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. As always, we want to send out a big thanks to Jeff Scoffrey Jet Ward for creating our show notes. Also to many of our listeners, and particularly to Mike Morgan, for the show opening disclaimer clips. And uh, don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace uh, website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, you can check out the wiki, or look at the uh, really cool growing airport restaurants list. And that's all at uncontrolledairspace.com. So, David, what were you going to say? There's a reason why Santa Claus has lived all these years, and that's because flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Go fly, live longer like Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. That's enough talking. Let's get out there and go flying. Merry Christmas and TTFN. All right. uh, Anything else? Please the brakes. I'm already drinking scotch, so whenever you start. I got a Boston lager going myself. All right. Diet ginger ale tonight. Say hello to Sam for me. Ice water for me. Ice water. He's for smiling at you, Jeff. Dave. Uh, we went to a we went to a Christmas party Saturday night, and I took a twelve pack of uh, of uh, Liney's uh, Nut Brown. That's a seasonal. And uh, yeah. I looked up. I drank two. I looked up, and there was one left. It's like <laughs> whoa. Yeah. And, and I, three gotta... people came up to me at the end of the party saying. Are you the one that brought the beer? Where did you find that? I'd never heard of that stuff. And then one guy came up and he says, wow, somebody else that knows about Lineys? I'm a member Is of the Lineys Lodge. Yeah. 
Dave, I, this is aviation related in that I got a, a friend who is a, a furloughed Midwest Airlines pilot. He sent me home the other day with a homemade bottle of mead. <laughs> I can't wait to break into. <laughs> mead? Really? Yeah. Yes. Wow. People still know how to make that? It looks beautiful. It looks like, it looks like white wine, but I know it's about four, 12 to 14%. Sounds like the oh, kind of yeah. thing that sounds like the kind of thing, Dave, that your buddy Chuck would make. No, it's one digit short if it's Chuck's. <laughs> it, Chuck Chuck's would be about 120 proof mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or 140 somewhere in that line. That's of course old muzzle loader, uh, which Chuck's I understand stuff. has been successfully used as fuel in a Rotax for five minutes. Yeah, I'm Chuck, sure it could be. Chuck stuff would would uh, suffice as um, engine. Uh, fuel. Re- really long time listeners will remember back when we first went to Sun and Fun and uh, I was limping around because I'd hurt my leg pretty badly and that stuff cured me. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was limping. I could barely walk. I was running that later that evening. <laughs> yeah. Now he didn't move for three days after that. Yeah. <laughs> for, that, for that one six hour period, he was hopping. It was medicinal. Oh, yeah. It was medicinal. Well, it, it, here it's a Chuck's homemade, all purpose gout, cancer, <laughs> tobacco quitting, uh, leg fixing cure called Old and- Muscle and it will degrease your cylinders after you pull them off the crank. <laughs> oh, man, will it ever. 